When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Jory Crowder, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with the Poet Laureate of Jamaica, Olive Senior, about her poetry collection, Pandemic Poets, First Wave. Welcome, Olive. Thank you, Jory. So glad to have you here. Olive Senior is the award-winning author of 20 books of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and children's literature, and other published work. Her Pandemic Poems First Wave was published in 2021, and Hurricane Watch, New and Collected Poems, has just been published by Carcanet. Her many awards include Canada's Writers' Trust Matt Cohen Award for Lifetime Achievement, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, an honorary doctorate from the University of the West Indies, and the Gold Medal of the Institute of Jamaica. Her work has been taught internationally and is widely translated. Olive Senior is from Jamaica and lives in Toronto, Canada, but returns frequently to the Caribbean, which remains central to her work. Olive, I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So am I, Jerry. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I like to start at the beginning when I talk to people. Um, how did you begin your writing journey? When, when did you start writing poetry? Well, I started as a child, as a young child, but of course I have no examples of that. But um, from a from a very early age, I I knew I was going to be a creative artist, you know, though I didn't know any writers. I grew up in a very remote village in Jamaica, but I learned to read at a very early age and fell in love with words. So it's as if my destiny is always was always going to be you know with writing, and um, I've written poetry all my life. My first adult book really is one that's in my collected poems. It's called "Talking of Trees," and that was published um, in 1985. But those poems would have been written a long time before that. And I have continued ever since to write poetry alongside, of course, other books. I write in many different genres. But poetry is very close to my heart. And of course, during the pandemic, poetry is what saved me, I think. Mm, tell me more about that. How did how did poetry save you during the pandemic? <laughs> well, you know, like everyone else, in the first few weeks of lockdown, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, it was such a disconcerting moment. And but I got interested in the language of the pandemic, you know, a lot of words and phrases that were new to us 
or or were in new new forms were being thrown out, like um, flatten the curve, you know, and social distancing and that sort of thing. And I I started out of sheer idleness to um, write down these words because I I needed to focus on something. And then I thought, what am I going to do with this vast accumulation of words? Because there were so many. And that's when I started writing poems. And I started sharing them on social media. And I was totally amazed at how, at the kind of instant response I got from people. Because in a way, um, I was recreating the, the, the village, you know, um, and the origins of poetry where people sat around a fire and talked about the day's events and sang and made music and so on. So it made me feel that I was part of a community. So I've been writing pandemic poems and posting them ever since. Wow. I love that idea of the, the call and response, the part of a community. Have you ever had that experience with writing in, in another way? Not, no, not, not with writing as such, although um, my books have been, say, on the school syllab- syllab- syllabi, syllabus um, in the Caribbean, say, and I've had the opportunity of traveling around the Caribbean and talking to hundreds of students reading my poetry who have been sort of busting, you know, to these central locations. And to me, that is like... Um, it's like talking back to the community because it was it was just so wonderful um, having these young people share and my sharing with them and we talked about the poems. So yeah, I guess that's the closest thing to to that kind of community response. I found that's the exciting thing about um, reading living poets. Um, nothing against. The, the poets of the past, but it, being able to have a conversation is, is kind of an exciting part of, of that whole Teach Living Poets um, movement. Yeah. So who, and who are your... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that writing is a lonely activity, so it's always wonderful to speak to an audience or have an audience of some sort. Oh, that's so true. That is so true. Um, who who are some of your influences when it comes to poetry, either from early on or recently? Yeah, I well, I I grew up in a British colony, so of course our literature was strict strictly British, um, you know, the literary canon, and so I grew up with you know Keats and Wordsworth and Shakespeare and and so on and so forth, which I quite enjoyed and. Um, which shaped me in a way, but as an adult, when I, you know, when I started to write seriously as an adult, I would say that um, some of my um, influences were socially conscious writers, like uh, Muriel Rukaiser is one, the American poet, Pablo Neruda, and um, and lately I've turned to Walt Whitman because in a way I want to write poetry that is simple and that is um, not too complicated. I want to get over the idea that poetry is something that only belongs to one class of person 
and has to be complicated and difficult to understand and so on. So, um, and I, I, I write out of a social conscience. So I, I think the poets who influence me are the ones that are doing the same. Wow, definitely. And you're, you just reminded me of your poem, Underlying Conditions. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read that for us. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Because um, this pandemic has really taught us a lot, hasn't it, about society? Not, you know, it's not just a health issue; it's it's a social and economic issue. So this is you for underlying conditions, and I should mention that these are alphabet poems. So um, anyway. A pandemic is a democratic event, we are told, the great equalizer, which makes us all equally at risk. But the toll keeper knows who goes first, the aged and the sickly, the immunocompromised, and those on the darker side who are being taken disproportionately quickly. It is not the melanin, no. Death has no prejudice but it can unmask society's pathology, laying bare the sickness that was always there, the social and economic inequalities that provide death with one's address. Studies show disempowerment makes people ill. Factories might be closed, but the manufacture of inequality never ceases. Communities of color are the most exposed as the pressure of underlying conditions increases, they are the ones most quickly summoned to pay the toll. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering, in, in this collection and, and maybe in your poetry in general, you talk about being socially conscious um, in your writing. How, how do you decide how and how much to weave in the effects in this book, particularly, uh, the pandemic had on revealing systemic racism. Yeah, well, I should explain that my writing in this book is very different from how I normally write poetry, um, because here I was the the getting across a point was more important to me than the the form or you know the craft of poetry. So. A lot of the poems in here, in fact, are quite pro prosaic or prosy. But this is a case where I wanted to get my point across. Whereas when I, with my other poetry, I try to be very nuanced, very subtle. Um, and so I am not trying to clobber the reader mm -hmm. over the head with anything, you know, or with ideas or so on. I try to find other ways of expressing, of getting my ideas across. And one of, I, I use a lot of different techniques, one of which is the voice. I assume persona. I take on the voices of people who are involved in activities and are best able to express what, what these activities or what they're suffering or the beliefs and so on might be about. So I'm much more conscious of distancing myself as a poet from the subject matter in my other poetry than I am in pandemic poems, in which I would say I'm very engaged, you okay. know, in a very obvious kind of way. Definitely. Oh, my goodness. 
it that reminds me of something you said in your preface uh, about using found poetry and uh, a form called Sena, I think you pronounce it, uh, yeah. which is, uh-huh. is using found poetry as a whole. And, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your use of that. And then maybe we can, we can hear W for workers is one of the poems that I found. Yes, this is, um, this is just a technique where you um, extract actual voices of people. And, and then put it all together. It's it's a very old um, kind of technique. But I use that quite a bit in this book because I felt that I could not speak on behalf of people, say, like the workers or or the medic, you know, people in um, hospitals and so on, because I don't have that experience. And it would be um, outrageous of me as an outsider to to try and tell their story. So I chose to use the vo- their voices and to just select out telling moments from their speech, telling sentences, and then assembling that to have an overall effect, which is really what this kind of poem is about. It's it's about creating an effect and an impact using different voices or being selective in choosing words spoken or written by others. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'd love to hear workers. If your W is for workers, if you're willing. Yeah. Um, Page 41. Well, the first part of it is me. And then after that, (laughs) after (laughs) that, it is the voice of workers. Awesome. Once we were faceless, then service workers. Now labeled essential, we have become heroes. Do not call us heroes. That's the kind of rhetoric that sends young people off to war, though we too are in the struggle because we have no choice. We are on the front lines, yes, but stop trying to speak for us. We have a voice. We are risk takers but we don't want praise. We just want a decent wage. And then here are the voices. Calling me a hero only makes you feel better. We are not heroes. We're hostages, work or starve. I feel like essential just stands for exhausted and expendable as a grocery worker. I'm essential and I get a starvation wage for others to eat. That's a fast food worker. All day, using hand sanitizer between every customer, my hands have become raw. My muscles ache from all the extra wiping down of our conveyor belt. That's a grocery store cashier. The distance principle, six feet between people, does not work in agriculture. That's a strawberry picker and anonymous. I'm not a hero. I'm just in debt. Wow. The way you cut through to the, to the reality, and I can see how using others' voices would, would help with that. Um, as you were watching this pandemic go forward, um, and, and I have to say this poem has resonance with me because I'm a teacher and they were t- calling mm-hmm. teachers heroes at the beginning as well. Right. <laughs> and and so what uh, so what other voices have you heard in in your 
in your search for, you know, as, as you were listening to this pandemic? Well, um, the voices, voices of people who have lost loved ones mm -hmm. and who are unable to mourn properly, for example, lies, um, voices of medical people, you know, in, in emergency rooms and so on. Um, and I, I have, I should add that since this book has been published, I've continued to write pandemic poems and these are not actually voices, but I'm also concerned with the environment. And so there are poems about what is happening, say, to birds or, you know, animals and so on and so forth. Um, but, but the main voices, actual voices that I'm, I, I have been using are of people on the front lines, you know? Definitely. Definitely. And I, I, I've noticed you, you had in your preface, um, and this, this goes back a little bit to bringing the community in. You write that these mm -hmm. poems capture the paradox that even as we're forced into consciousness of being a part of the world, we're at the same time forced to be a part. And so yes. how, how does poetry help us deal with that paradox? And what else do you have to say about the paradox? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, um, what poetry does is, or can do, is encapsulate ideas and express them in a very compact way, in a very short way. So all of my poems are based on very extensive reading and very lengthy articles in newspapers, magazines, you know what I mean. Mm. And so my job as a poet is, is to boil all of that down, so to speak, and reduce it to a very simple form that I give back to the reader who then says, aha, I, I didn't realize that because it's, it's a way of waking people up to what is essential to it. But um, the thing is, we are still very separate. We are still in our own little corner. And yet we are more conscious than ever of being a part of the world of, you know, we're, we've become so globalized and so um, my poems are about things happening all over the world. I mean, they're poems about, say, the garment workers of the South or of people stuck in a railway station in India and so on. And to me, that's a paradox that we're, we're stuck in our own little corners. And yet at the same time, through um, technology, now, you know, we can reach out to each other and we can connect that way. Interesting. So it's almost like poetry is one of those pieces of technology that we can use to like you say, wake people up. Oh. Yes. And, it, you know, it's, it's just to me, it's like playing, I don't know, ping pong or tennis or something, <laughs> you know, going back and forth. And I love the comments that I get from from readers. Um, and that, in a way, it's my I'm sending something out into the world and people the fact that people are sending something back to me, even if it's just saying thank you, is what is keeping me writing these poems and sending them out. You know what I mean? So it's been an, a, a major way for me of connecting with the world, even though I'm mainly isolated, you know? Yes, yes. And you talk about writing being a lonely um, occupation, but that yeah. that connection is what makes it Oh, that's, that's awesome. That is wonderful. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your craft. Um, one of the poems 
that really um, struck me when it came to your craft was H is for hand. And your play, your play on the word hand takes several turns. And so I'd love to hear that poem and then talk to you a little bit about that, that device. Yeah, and I should say, as I mentioned at the outset, these are alphabet poems, meaning, you know, it's A for so-and-so. And what really helped me in writing these poems is having that kind of focus, mm. having a word, you know. It's it's a word that enabled me as a poet to focus on the word. And hand was one of them. And I have to say, I really enjoyed this one. Um <laughs> You know, just sitting down and jotting down all, 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 all the meanings of hand or the words that are related to hand. Um, so I don't know if you want me to read it. It's I would love that, and I have to tell you, you're giving me so many ideas for lessons and mentor texts. So <laughs> as a teacher, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I keep talking about the importance of word. If you're stuck, it's it's something I tell my writing students. If you're stuck in any form of writing, just try and think, if I, if I could only use one word to describe this, what would that word be? And that usually sets you off on the path you need to go. You know, it just gives you the focus. Oh, that's but lovely. anyway, um, this is H for hand. And of course, it's full of cliches, which normally I wouldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> Days when a handshake was as good as a signature or your word. And handsome was a compliment. Handy meant really good at everything or being one's right hand. Days of our youth, when a hand-delivered letter was often signed S-W-A-K. But kisses are bad now. Love tokens proffered at arm's length, out of reach or second hand. My granny's hand wash hand mantra no longer means reciprocity, but look to your own. Wash hands frequently. Stay home or stay 18 hands apart, four inches the length of a hand. Each day we glad hand our heroes, our hospital and health workers who uphold hand as symbol of fortitude and fidelity, while they handcuff death or try to keep it a hand's breadth from our door. Our leaders caution, all hands on deck now until we get a handle on it and can pull together to a brighter shore where we will unhand each other, disband to return to a new normal world. Not quite so fast, my friends. The crisis is out of our hands, but not entirely. See the handwriting on the wall? What will we hand down to posterity? No longer can we wash our hands of what offends us, those living hand to mouth. We cannot say in the face of distress, our hands are full, our hands are tied, our hands are clean. A handout is not a handsome gift. What would be handier is learning how to slice the pie and pass it hand to hand so everyone can take an equal share. 
So lovely. Oh my goodness. So much is going on in that poem. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit more about um, your process or, or anything that you've, you, you know, emphasize. Yeah. That poem. Well, yeah. Well, the process of writing these pandemic poems is first of all, I, I read and absorb a lot of material. I have to confess, I'm a print, I'm very print oriented. Mm. So a lot of my information, I read about six newspapers in the morning. When I say read, you know, I skim and go through mm. um, to get a sense. I like to know what's happening in the world. And I, I read anything to do with the pandemic or climate or, you know, those issues. And so, and then I make notes and... But I have to find something in that issue or topic that sort of resonates with me. So I've written down a lot of things that I haven't written a poem about because something in the event has to trigger um, a sort of response in me that will enable me to write the poem. It's very hard for me to explain that process. But... um, and then once I decide, okay, I'm going to write the poem about this particular topic, and, th- and then think about language, because poetry is based on nothing but language, you know. Yeah. And so I need to find the right words. And I, play, I like word play. I like playing with words and finding meanings and um, etc. So it's a process that I go through with each poem. Um, to first of all, to, to break down very complex information in a way that I have to understand it first of all, and then trying to find a way of distilling that information and then finding the right words to express it in a very brief and simple way. So it's, it's quite a challenge, actually. But one that I have to confess <laughs> that, you know, during this time, it's, I, I welcome the challenge because it keeps me from falling into a sort of depression. And, you know. Oh, yes. It, <laughs> we, we, all need, we, need, we all need our creative outlets that feed us. And that, that sounds almost, Absolutely. that sounds like a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. And, you know, I I say to my writing student, you know, writing is hard work. People don't realize that. It's hard work. It It's something you're, you do alone and so on. So you should enjoy what you're doing. And if I find I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, I'm, I know I'm on the wrong path, you know. And I've certainly enjoyed um, these pandemic poems and the sense of urgency I get that, oh, my goodness, it's been several days now. I haven't posted a pandemic poem. I better, <laughs> you know, write a new one. So it's been a good way. It's it's kept me going. Let's put it that way. Oh, definitely. And And where can people, how can people follow you on Twitter? What is your handle so that they can follow your poems as you as you put them out? Oh my goodness, I don't even know. I think it's just Olive Senior Twitter. I think so. <laughs> I'm not very... Oh, that's okay. I think I it's know. Things, I think it's Olive Senior slash Twitter. I, 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 um, although I use Twitter and Facebook, I'm not very savvy and I'm totally embarrassed. Oh no, it's not, um, it's not embarrassing at all because <laughs> the fact that you use it is what matters, right? Yeah. Yes. It's, um, yeah. Let's see. And um, I mean, the the poems are available. um, You know, if you Google pandemic poems, Olive Senior. Definitely. Um, And and I found your handle and it is it is simply at Olive Senior. 
Um, and so that's exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much. Know, oh, that's, dear. that's wonderful. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. No, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad that you you're putting them out there, and it's a, a living, it's a living piece of poetry. We can we can find it every every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so and it's it's you know in a way it's memorializing a moment. I didn't expect it to to go into three years. Mm. And the poems in this book are a record of part of the first year. The ones I'm writing now, I'd probably end up doing another book and they would be, you know, another year and so on. Um, so it's not just poetry to me. I'm conscious of the fact that it's it's a record of a time that we're living through. Um, my, only, my only concern is that perhaps um, in a few years' time, people might have forgotten or, or younger people will come along and not get all of the references, you know, oh, but yes. um, I'm certainly conscious that this is, this is a, um, a memory aid to a moment that is of such significance to all of us. Definitely. Definitely. I can see that. And, and you mentioned a couple times that um, your poems all start with letters of the alphabet and a word that starts with this letter, mm -hmm. almost like, like a child's reading primer or nursery rhyme. Um, yes. And can you tell me a little bit more about about this the structure? You talked about it as being um, a way to, you know, note what what the words are. Um, mm -hmm. Anything else you can tell me and, about that? Well, really, it's it's. Um... It's, it's a way for forcing me as a poet to, to focus, you know. So, for instance, um, there's an issue, say, of um, wearing a mask. How do, you, how do you communicate with people wearing a mask? And I reduce that to S for smile, <laughs> because, you know, smiling is something we can't do. Um, I'm just looking to see what, what examples... There are um, uh, you um, okay. See, see for cranes, for instance. At the start of the pandemic, I live in downtown Toronto, and I, every time I looked out of my window beforehand, I'm surrounded by construction cranes everywhere. And suddenly, at the start, construction was halted, and the cranes stopped. And I thought I was. I thought, gee, I'd like to write about these cranes. Well, what do you say about a you know a mechanical crane sitting there? And I suddenly realized that it coincided with the um, migratory flights of rail cranes. You know, so then I wrote. See, I was able to write this poem. See for cranes, which is comparing the mechanical cranes and the the joyful. A mating flight of other cranes. I'm not sure that's a good example of. Um, of I, I know what you're asking. Oh, how about um, a fun poem that I had was Q for quarantine roots, because I wanted to remember when um, hair. You know, it was a big issue, and people are complaining in lockdown that they 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 were not able to go out and buy hair color 
or <laughs> fertilizer or stuff like that. So um, I call it Cue for Quarantine Roots because I wanted to write a lighthearted poem. But also, once once I had that title, it sort of forced me into into the st- structure in the poem in a particular kind of way. You know, so these just choosing a word or a phrase is um, is more for my convenience than anyway. You know, it's it's helping the poet to um, to structure the poem or double for waiting, which is about um, a set of people who are s- stuck in a Indian um, train station for a long um, how half the world is 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 it's really collateral damage for half the world really it's not just um everybody's suffering but the the poverty um the poorest countries in the world are suffering the most because the impact is greatest on them and one of the poems here actually is about how poor people in one country i think it was in guatemala got to wave in flags, colored colored bits of cloth to signify their need, their need for medicine or their need for food or what have you. And I, I don't think that um, the Western nations, developed countries, have even now realized how um, the, the sort of impact that the pandemic, that things like climate change, um, that those things are having on the rest of the world which really did not bring about necessarily climate change. You know, they're not the main contributors to that. And yet, so that's what I mean by collateral damage, um, that people who are sometimes not involved or innocent become the recipients of the worst damage from, you know, whether it's a capitalist system or which... um, you know, uh, whatever is happening in the developed world has the greatest impact on people in the Right, and it's so immediate, world, but then it brings us into um, the collective, you know, into the universal. Oh, that is that is so beautiful. And you, and you talk about how, how the letters are a device for helping you to focus um, on different things, but it's almost like, as we were talking, I'm realizing this is a primer for for us, because we haven't been through these three years of pandemic before. We're all just trying to figure out, you know, what, what is happening? What does it mean? What, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's a primer for the pandemic. Yes. Well, this is a huge book. It's um, Hurricane Watch, new and, and collected poems. So it's really a collection of my first four poetry books, the complete books, as well as a new, new collection of poetry. So it's everything in here, really. <laughs> it doesn't include it. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's beautiful. It doesn't include um, pandemic poems, <laughs> because I'm treating that as totally separate. So it's quite exciting for me, because it's really and truly, it, it gave me the opportunity to really look at all my poetry, which is not something that I normally do, from my earliest published poetry up, you know, up to the present. I am, yes, I cannot wait to hear some of them because I've, as I was mentioning to you before, I've, I've read some of your poetry um, 
before uh, plants. And I'm, I'm assuming that that poetry collection will be in there from, from gardening in the tropics. So exciting. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I have a lot of themes that run through actually the four collections, which amazes me. One is, is environmental and histor- history, um, because essentially I see myself as a gardener where to garden, the first thing you have to do is clear the space um, out of old and outmoded and, uh, and stuff, and then you dig. And so I've been digging. I've been digging into our history and so on. And um, so a lot of my poems are about, um, I, I talk about 1492, Columbus's arrival in the Caribbean, New World, is a, a foundational myth for me because this is when um, what the, the so-called New World, the Americas, uh, a whole new paradigm of human relationships was introduced that is the inequalities of people because um, you know Columbus and subsequent conquistadors did not believe that the native peoples were even human you know and so <coughs> excuse me my argument is that we are still processing that and living through, that moment of encounter, what is it, 500 and many more years after. So a lot of my poems are really about that, about I've done a lot of research into the indigenous people of the Caribbean um, because um, we were told nothing in our history books or very little about them and so on. So um, Then, of course, we were told very little about the subsequent history of, say, the Caribbean, where I come from, which is one of enslavement and then indenture, you know, the plantation system and so on. So I've been pursuing this history all along in these books. And uh, maybe I'll read a poem in it's I wrote a book called Shell, which was to mark the 200th anniversary of the abolition of this slave trade. So a lot of the poems are not specifically about slavery, but about the legacies, both in the Caribbean and in Britain, in the metropole, because of all the wealth from these countries, from slavery, went to build up metropolitan countries. And one of the things I'm concerned about as a writer is to try to be the instrument through which voices that have been written out of history can be heard. So I'll just read one poem um, about that, which is um, the plantation owners in the Caribbean and the, the, you know, there was enormous wealth there from sugar. Um, They often out of vanity commissioned plantation maps which were surveys, but also beautiful renderings of the layout of the plantation and so on. They're works of art. And there are hundreds of them in the collection of the National Library of Jamaica. And a historian, Barry Higman, has actually wrote a book based on them called Jamaica Surveyed. And the significant thing for me was that 25% of these maps show the village area as a blank. In other words, 
the village is where the enslaved people lived. And the gem- some of these plantations were huge, Caribbean plantations. They had hundreds of people. So the people who made possible the functioning of the plantation and the wealth are erased from these maps. So I wrote a little poem called Join the Dots. It's a ghost story um, in the voice of a child who connects with some people who lived in this village hundreds of years ago. We played at Join the Dots, Grandma and me, but never could we win the prize, for I saw pictures she could not see. They said I had clear-seeing eyes. Our house was built on land where once a village stood, where fragments floating in the air sometimes cried out for personhood. They pounded on the rooftop, tore at the gutter. Hush, it is the wind, Grandma said, but I knew better, though I would never utter a word, for I was sworn to secrets. This is where we once lived too, the children said. We'd like to play with you. When I could not sleep for black dots floating, Grandma said, hush, I'll bring you cocoa tea sweetened with cane sugar and a hint of nutmeg. That will calm you down. I tried to share it with my ghostly friends who said they lived in land snail shells and sailed all night the village round. Their old one said, no, you drink up, child. For this, our bodies turned to dust, ground into fields of sugarcane, of cocoa walks, of nutmeg groves. Drink in remembrance of us. I drain the cup. The cocoa, cane sugar, the nutmeg touched me so sweetly. I'd sleep long, sleep deeply. Oh, my goodness. That is eerie and wonderful and delicious and and terrifying at the same time. Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, it's also about memory, you know, about retrieving memory. Definitely. And the whole idea of clear seeing eyes was was one of the phrases that that resonated with us and and how maybe poetry can help us see more clearly what, what most of us miss. Yeah. And it's children that, that yeah, are the ones that can fact, do that. Exactly. That's why uh, my the final connection, collection of my book is called EYED, E-Y-E-D. Ooh. And I should also add that I write fiction as well. And a lot of my short stories are concerned precisely with children, you know, as they, from their point of view, because they can see so clearly. They can see so many things that adults miss. And they have a bring a freshness and innocence, you know, to the table that I like. Absolutely. 100%. Um, is, is there anything else you'd like to read me from your, your upcoming collection? Um, if you have time. We do. Um, we, have, we do have a little more time I, for one more at least. Yes. Okay. Um, because I also like to have a light touch in my writing, no matter what I'm writing, no matter how serious the subject matter, because to me, this is part of who we are as Caribbean people. We take serious thing, make joke, as we say, we laugh. And so, um, 
So this is lighthearted. As we know, um, in the Caribbean, in a lot of cultures, women are both mothers and fathers. You know, they, they produce and they reproduce. Um, so <laughs> this is a poem from Gardening in the Tropics um, called Tropic Love. Gardening in the tropics, you hear poetry in some unexpected places. Sitting on my veranda last night, I overheard two people passing by. The woman said, You don't bring me flowers anymore or anything for the children. My heart has turned to stone, but I cannot put that in the pot. Love me and my family, or leave me to sit by the roadside to sell, by the riverside taking in washing, by my lady's fire cooking for my living. I'm a woman with heavy responsibilities. With my lot, I'm prepared to be contented. With your sweet words, lover, tempt me not if you've come empty-handed. <laughs> Delightful. That is so. I've, I've. That's one thing that I have noticed in your poetry of of all others is is the the touch of humor that is in so much of it, um, and that is so enjoyable. Yeah. Um, there's there's one more question that I I like to ask at the end of um, my interviews, and that is, um, what is there anything you're reading right now? that's inspiring, sustaining, or feeding you during these challenging times? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I, uh, I'm reading poetry, but I'm always re- I always read mm. poetry. Um, and I'm always thinking of things that I want to write. And of um, so I tend to read a lot of... Um, Nonfiction at the moment. I read history, anthropology, that sort of thing as a way of informing myself. And I'm still um, very much interested in the indigenous um, populations of the Caribbean, who originally, it is believed, came from Central and South America. So, um, you know, that um, it takes me back to that as well. So, a lot of my reading is just to inform my other work. I, you know, I can't think of anything, a title right now. No, no, that's wonderful. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I do, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction and I find normally, I mean, I would normally read a lot of fiction, but I have found with um, the pandemic, I find it very hard to concentrate on, on fiction. I don't mm. know why, other than detective fiction, no. <laughs> which is, which is my form of escapism, you know? I, I totally understand oh, and, yeah. and uh, commiserate with that. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining me, Olive. Um, this has been a delightful conversation. Um, thank you, Jory. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for giving me this opportunity oh, to talk to a wider <laughs> audience. It's been great. Um, once again, I'm Jory Crawler, co-host of the New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and I've spoken to Olive Senior today.